I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We want you to see the passages that we're considering. So these guys have some Bibles. If you need one, get their attention. And they'll get you one of those Bibles. It's marked for you at Ephesians chapter 4. We concluded our series in the opening chapters of Genesis last week. And at that time, I told you our next series in the worship hour, this hour, would be a survey of the book of Job. We are going to do the go through the book of Job soon. But our upcoming schedule has some special dates in it that if we started that today, we would go a few weeks and then it would disrupt a few more weeks and then it would disrupt again. In two weeks, we have a Father's Day message, and then a few weeks after that, we're going to devote the entire service to the observance of the Lord's table or communion. So for the next few weeks, I've decided to reprise a portion of our series from several years ago from the book of Ephesians, in particular from chapter 4. Now, for those of you who came only because you thought we'd be in Job, we're all going to close our eyes now and you can leave if you if you don't want to stay for Ephesians 4. But please accept my apology and I hope you get something helpful as we look at Ephesians. There was a time when there were different clothes to be worn for different occasions. Now I say there was a time, past tense, because today casual is accepted as the norm almost anywhere you go. I've been in restaurants where the waiter is wearing a bow tie and is dressed very formally, but I and most everyone else in the place is dressed casually. We live in a casual culture. But even now in this casual culture, there is still some understanding that certain clothes are appropriate or even required for some occasions. If you're on a team, you wear a uniform to identify yourself as belonging. If you're in prison, you do the same. If you're in the military, ditto. But when you leave those, when your playing days for the team are over, or when you're released from prison, or when you're discharged, or you retire from the military, then you leave the uniform behind and you exchange it for something appropriate to who you are now. You might keep the team uniform hanging in the closet, or even prize your military fatigues. I assume the prison folks want the uniform back. And you'll gladly oblige. And from time to time, you might pull that uniform out, those fatigues out, to remind yourself of what you were. The Bible teaches us, and in particular focuses in on teaching us in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, that God is recreating people. People who in the past were identified outwardly by how they talked and what they did. And those outward characteristics were consistent with the inward character with which all of us are born. And chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians are about all that God has done to change us from the inside. And then beginning in chapter 4 through the end in chapter 6, we're told what we need to clothe ourselves with so that our outward appearance is consistent with our new life. So verse 22 of Ephesians 4 says this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life 
to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So we're told here, as we are told elsewhere in Scripture, put off and put on. And the terms for put off and put on are terms used for removing or wearing clothing. So this passage is telling us we are to wear, adorn ourselves with characteristics that are appropriate for our new identity in Christ. And you have clothes and I have clothes in my closet that are appropriate to both the old self and the new self. When you become a a Christian... The old self is not obliterated. He's still around. And unlike reminiscing about your playing or your military days, and then putting on the uniform for old time's sake, the clothes of the old man are to be increasingly discarded, removed from the closet that is the new you. And you're to increasingly adorn and cultivate and enhance and beautify that new you with outward characteristics appropriate for who God has made and is making you. And this is why I've titled this mini-series in Ephesians 4, How to Show Your Faith. We can say we have faith, we can say we believe, but how do I show that I have that faith, that I really believe? And that is what Ephesians 4 is telling us. Verse 24 of Ephesians 4 says this new self is, quote, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what is the righteous and holy look that God wants us to have? How can one who is becoming increasingly righteous and holy be identified as such? How do you know if you're making progress in discarding the old clothes and putting on the new clothes? Verse 25 says this, starts with this word, therefore. Because God has given you this new life, because God is involved in this restoration project, making you this new person outwardly that you are inwardly, because of that, therefore, and then it says, each of you must. And then that's followed in the verses uh, that come after by six things all the way to chapter 5 and verse 4 that we must do in order to look like what we are. So God is saying, put off and put on, increasingly put off the old stuff, put on the new stuff. I'm involved, I got him involved in this project of creating you to be like me in true righteousness and holiness. And here's how you'll know that you are looking the part. Therefore, each of you must, and then it gives these six things from chapter 4, verse 25 through chapter 5 and verse 4. Now, I have two of those six listed in the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out already, I encourage you to pull out that page. And we're going to look at as many of those six as we can in the few weeks that we have. I think I'll only get to the first of them today. Now, before we see what kind of speech and behavior is consistent with Christian character. I want you to see some things that all six of these have in common. And I've listed these in in your outline. Each of the six qualities that we're to put on 
And therefore, the things that we're to put off are, first of all, relational. Holy living is relational. Holy living is relational. The six types of behavioral clothing that Christians are to wear are these. I'm just going to go through these quickly, but in verse 25 that we'll look at today, we're to put on new honesty in our dealings with others. In verses 26 and 27, we're to have a new perspective that seeks reconciliation rather than hostility. In verse 28, we're to have a new priority of giving rather than taking. In verses 29 and 30, we're to engage in new communication to and about others. In chapter 4 and verse 31 through, and this carries on into chapter 5 and verse 2, we're to have a new attitude toward others. And then in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5, there's to be a new propriety in what we talk about and why we talk about it. Now, all six of those, if you, if you were to go through those, you would find that all six of those are carried out in our relationships with others. And that's because holiness is not a mystical condition that's experienced in relationship to God, but in isolation from human beings. John Stott says, you cannot be good in a vacuum, but only in the real world of people. If you're progressing in becoming like God in true righteousness and holiness, it's going to show up in your relationships. When chapter 4 and verse 1 tells us to live lives that are worthy, it says there, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live lives that are worthy of the calling that you've received. Chapter 4 and verse 1. And when it tells us to live these lives that are worthy, that is consistent with the calling that's described in chapters 1 through 3, then chapter 4 begins in verse 4 and all the way through verse 16 by stressing that our new lives are to be lived in unity with one another. And then verse 17 of chapter 4 all the way through chapter 5 and verse 20 teach that our lives are to be holy, but that holiness is fostered And it's cultivated and it's strengthened in community with other people. Holy living is relational. But I say as well in your outline, holy living is positive. This new life, this new us that we are in Christ is to be lived out in community with one another. And that's where it shows up. But it's also positive. And when I say positive, I mean It's not just what you avoid, it's what you positively do. It's not seen just in negation, don't do this. It's seen in what you actually do. Each of the six attitudes and behaviors that go from chapter 4 and verse 25 to chapter 5 and verse 4 tell us not only what to put off, what not to say or do, but also what we are to say and do. That's why when years ago... I used to teach teenagers as part of my ministry. Uh, I had a series and developed a series called Positive Holiness. And the idea there was to stress to young people who, you remember being a teenager, how sick you were of being told what you can't do, what you don't do. And to, to stress to them that all of the things that the Bible tells us not to do are all because of the things that God is telling us to do. 
positively. That we are positively to be striving to become more and more like Jesus, to bring glory to Him. And that's why you have the Ten Commandments, which are mostly things you don't do, right? You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. But then when Jesus is asked in Matthew 22, which is the greatest commandment? He doesn't cite any of the Ten Commandments. He cites two other commandments, one from Deuteronomy chapter 6, another from Leviticus chapter 19. He says, love the Lord your God from Deuteronomy chapter 6 with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And then from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. He says the first, love the Lord your God is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. And then he says on these two commands hang all the law. All the negative stuff, all the things you're to avoid, all the stuff you're not to do is because of what you're to do. Love God and love others. That's why the Bible teaches something that some have called the replacement principle. That the Bible doesn't tell you just to put off, stop doing, avoid things. It tells you to replace those things with other and better things. This is why Jesus' gold, the so-called golden rule, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you, is superior to the silver rule of Confucius. Confucius said several hundred years before Jesus, do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. <clears throat> Sounds the same as the golden rule, doesn't it? Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. But notice, the one is negative. It's what you are to avoid. And the other is positive. It's things you have to do. The truth is, you could fulfill the the silver rule. Don't do to others what you would not want them to do to you simply by doing nothing. I mean, theoretically, you could sit in that seat and waste away and die and you would have fulfilled the silver rule. You didn't do anything to anybody that you don't want them to do to you. Jesus says, no, you've got to get out of your seat. You've got to interact with people, and you've got to positively do to others what you would want done to you. So there is this replacement principle. John Stott says this, it's not enough to put off the old rags. We have to put on new garments. So as we're going to see, it's not enough to give up lying and stealing and losing our temper unless we also start speaking the truth and working hard and being kind to people. Holy living is relational, it is positive, and then I say in your outline, it's also reasonable. Holy living is reasonable. In these six items of clothing for the new man that are given in Ephesians, chapters 4 and 5, in all six of those, a reason for the command is either given or implied. Just a a few examples from the six. When verse 28 says we should work for what we get, it doesn't just say work for what you get. It goes on to tell you why. So that we can give to those who are in need. Or when verses 29 and 30 instruct us on how to talk, the reason is given at the end of verse 29 so that it may benefit those who listen. Each of the six Christian virtues that's listed in this passage is relational, 
and it's positive and it's reasonable. That is, a reason is given for motivation to actually do what's commanded. So verse 25 gives us the first of these six. And verse 25 says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Now you see all three of those in that one verse. You see the relational, you see the positive, and you see the reasonable. This is obviously relational. It involves our honesty to other people. And it's also positive. It says what we're to put off, but also what we're to put on. And it's reasonable. The reason that we should do this is because lying destroys unity. So let's look together at the first of these six from verse 25 of Ephesians 4. And in your outline, I say that verse teaches that the new you, the new you wears truth. The new you wears truth. Verse 25 is telling us that Christians are not just to know the truth, but we're to be characterized by truth-telling. So we can be people who come to a Bible-believing and Bible-teaching church and we learn the truth. And we could win a debate about some theological issue. It's certainly important to know the truth. But this is saying that not only are we to know the truth, we're to speak the truth. We're to be truth-tellers. When we speak, there's to be no doubt that what we say is the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Now, I need to quickly deal with some exceptions because there are always some exceptions. If you're a police officer, in your job, you may have to deceive a suspected criminal regarding your intentions. You may be even undercover. So that's a type of deception. Or in times of war, a soldier may have to deceive the enemy. In a football game, the quarterback may have to, in a sense, deceive deceive the defense by disguising a play. And you may recall the story of Rahab in the first part of your Bible in the Old Testament. And she deceived those who were looking for the spies from Israel, and the Bible commends her for that. This is not a situation, a matter of situation ethics. Some of you have heard that before, that that's the way we're to live our lives, by situational ethics. And in situation ethics, the basis for what one does is relative. But rather instead, I like the term that John Davis uses, who wrote a book called Evangelical Ethics. And we may have it in the Resource Center. I think we did at one time. So if you want to look for it, you can. And I just say it this way, kind of with the pained expression, because I didn't check. And the Resource Center people will kill me if you go charging in there. And they don't have these books. So if you go in there, just nonchalantly act like you're looking for that book. And don't say, I told you about it, all right? If you have to lie to get through that, go ahead. It's it's all in a good cause. But John Davis, in that book, uses the term contextual absolutism. And the difference is that rather than the basis being relative, the basis is is absolute, but those absolutes are carried out in particular contexts. 
There are absolutes that God has given in Scripture, and these are carried out in the various contexts, the context creating the exception if there is to be one. But this truth that we are to adorn, that we are to, to be known by, and that in our speaking, in our relationships with one another, it's hard for us to pull off. It's hard for us to pull off as sinners because, as I remind you often, the prophet Jeremiah said this about all of us, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So our hearts, we are born with hearts that are deceitful. We deceive ourselves and in turn, we practice deceiving others. Romans chapter 3, as it catalogs the sinfulness of All of humanity says, among many other things, their tongues practice deceit. And we learn to practice the deceit that is in our hearts very early on. I heard a comedian years ago telling the story about a child whose mother had told the child, no more cookies for you, and I'm going to put the cookie jar way up top here so you can't get it. A little bit later, the mother was in the living room. She heard some rattling in the kitchen. So she went in to check it out. And there is this child who has built a tower and climbed up on top and has his hand in the cookie jar. And the mother says, I thought I told you you couldn't have any more cookies. And the child says, I was getting one for you. (laughs) And the mother says, I don't want a cookie. And the child says... Well, then can I have it? (laughs) We learn it very early. And some of us get very, very good at it. And particularly if we grew up in an environment where deception was the norm, where we had parents who deceived, it's very easy for us to habitually be people who deceive, speak falsehood. The ninth of the famous Ten Commandments says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, what does that involve? Fulfilling that command, obeying that command to not bear false witness. Well, in the 16th century, a famous Protestant catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism in the year 1563. You know, a catechism is a series of questions and answers to help you get grounded in in what it is you believe. And question number 112 is, what is required in the ninth commandment? And then it goes on, and this is somewhat wordy, but stay with it. It says that I bear false witness against no man, twist no one's words, that I be no backbiter, speak, speak spitefully about someone that is, or a slanderer that I do not judge or join in condemning any man rashly or unheard of, that is, without hearing his side of the story, but that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil, unless I would bring down upon myself the heavy wrath of God. Likewise, that in judicial and all other dealings I love the truth, speak it uprightly and confess it, And that as much as I am able, I defend and promote the honor and reputation of my neighbor. Oh, (laughs) there's a lot to that whole not bearing false witness thing, isn't there? And the Bible has so very much to say 
about what we say. And in particular, in this area of whether or not what comes out of our mouths is truth or, or falsehood. Proverbs. The righteous hate what is false, but the wicked bring shame and disgrace. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. I love your word. I love your, I love your truth. But where does this all come from then, that the Bible would spend so much time speaking to this matter of deceit and falsehood? Well, it comes from the fact that we come into this world not as children of God, but rather as imitators and really children of, of the devil. Jesus said, very straightforwardly, the devil is a liar and he is the father of lies. And then he went on to say, you are of your father, the devil. Now, we don't like to think of ourselves that way, but that's what the Bible teaches about our sin and our inherited sin through Adam. And since the devil is the father of lies, then we're going to look at examples of falsehood from the very first contact that the father of lies had with humanity back in Genesis chapter 3. Now, I'm going to have all the verses up on the screen, so you don't need to turn back to Genesis 3 unless you, unless you want to. And we're going to see several types of falsehood that are given in that first encounter between Satan and the first human pair from Genesis chapter 3. And I have these types of falsehood provided on your outline. And these are given in a helpful little booklet by Lou Priolo, simply called Deceitfulness. The first that we see in Genesis chapter 3 is this, an outright lie. An outright lie. Verse 1 of Genesis 3 says, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the dialogue dialogue goes on. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will you will die. And then here's the outright lie. Satan responds by saying, you will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman. Satan verbally negated God's promise. God had said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so he outright contradicts God. And then he has to give an explanation for why God would lie about it. All right, you follow? So Satan here is disguising himself as not the father of lies. Very subtle, very crafty. And he's saying God is the one who is lying. Well, now he's going to have to give some reason for why it is that that God would lie about it. And he does that in the next verse. He moves from an outright lie, an outright contradiction, to the second thing I have in your outline, an insinuation. Insinuation. He insinuates something about the motives and the character of God. The passage goes on with Satan speaking and saying, God knows... That when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And sure enough, that false information, that insinuation about the character of God, now implanted in Eve, in this case, skews her perspective about God. 
she now sees things differently. And that's why as it goes on, the next verse says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. Well, okay. Thank you for your help, Mr. Serpent. For explaining to me why it is that God gave this command. Because it turns out God does not have my best interest at heart. I am so glad that somebody with inside information like you has come to fill me in so that I'm not hoodwinked by this God guy. And so now her perspective on God has been skewed. And as she looks at the fruit, she looks at it differently. And she sees all of these Wonderful traits about it, and she takes some and she eats it. And she also, the passage says, gave some to her husband who was with her and saying nothing. We'll talk about that on Father's Day. (laughs) Guys, speak up. And he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. Insinuation. Suggesting something about the character of someone else that influences the hearers. Falsehood, deception. You know, if I was with you over the weekend, and then the following week someone brought up your name, and I say, you know, yeah, I saw Joe. Sorry, Joe Crock. Mm-hmm. I saw Joe this, this weekend, and he was sober the whole time. Now notice, that's all true, isn't it? I saw him and he was sober. But I'm insinuating something, aren't I? About him. That there's some problem. And that's precisely what Satan did with regard to God. There's a problem with God. He's not what he claims to be. And once you listen to that, and once you then process that, and you allow that to take root, it now affects what you do and it affects what the woman did based upon that. Another type of falsehood is concealment. Concealment. The truth is, the man and the woman did come to know good and evil. And that was what Satan had said. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like God, sort of, in that you will know good and evil. And indeed, they did come to know good and evil, like God, but the part that was concealed was this. Unlike God, they would come to know good and evil, not just intellectually, but experientially. They would experience good and evil and evil's consequences. God knows evil, but God doesn't participate in evil. Now they will be participants in evil. He concealed that. He left that out. False information changes your perspective and it guides your attitudes and actions that follow. And that is why, dear friends, we as Christian people who are devoted to truth have got to be people who are so careful about whom we listen to. And if someone speaks about another person to you, in a negative way. Then you need to go to that other person or take that individual to that other person to verify the information. Otherwise, what happens is it's insinuated. 
You may not be and what may well not be getting the whole story. Part of it may be concealed, but it affects you and how you see that person. I know this firsthand on both sides. I've done it. I'm ashamed to say. And one story in particular that uh, I recall often in this context is about a woman about whom I was told some very negative things years ago. And I was told these very negative things by some people in my then church before we started community. And I heard these stories and I listened to these stories about this person that I didn't know personally. They didn't go to our church. They were outside our church. And I listened, but all of that was insinuated. And all of that was planted so that it affected my perspective about this person. I know the real deal with you. When from time to time I would see this woman. And over the years I've seen her many, many times. And for the first many times... The first thing that would come to my mind was all these negative things that I've been told. And yet, over the years, and it has been 25 years, over the years, I've watched from afar as this woman has sacrificially served in her church and been a great blessing to the people in her church. And I know lots of people who go to her church, and I've never heard a negative word about her. And About halfway through that 25 years, it finally dawned on my thick skull. Maybe I didn't get the full perspective. And maybe the way I view this woman is now false and wrong because I listened to negative things about her and I had no way of confirming this. I've been on both sides of that. I've been on the side of listening to it. I've been on the side of having it said. And you have too. Having things said about you, insinuated about you. And about your motivations. Someone with supposed inside information says, well, he's doing this or they, the leadership. Oh, yikes, you know, the administration, you know how they are. It's just objectified, the leadership. And they're doing this, but here's the real reason they're doing it. I heard it from a reliable source. And then motivations are imagined for why which affect those who hear it. I've had to correct people on those kinds of things. People who've come to me in their wisdom and said, look, I need to talk to you. This is what I heard. And I go, wow. Well, okay, let me tell you the deal. And then when you tell the person the deal, it's interesting to look at them across the desk with mouth agape. Wow, that's a totally different different perspective. And you know, here's what the Bible says in Proverbs 18. The first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. So, dear friends, be very careful. I have got to be very careful who I give credence to. You you need to do the same thing if we're going to be people of truth. So these types of falsehood include outright lies, insinuation, concealment, but also blame-shifting, blame-shifting. In that scenario of that first sin that involved the deceit of Satan through the the serpent, the Lord confronts the man and the woman, and they said, we're hiding from you because we we were naked. And then the Lord says, who told you you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman, the first thing out of her mouth is the serpent. So it's not my fault. We heard clearly what it was you told us to do, but Adam says the woman, the woman says the serpent, and in the man's case, he explicitly says to God, it's not only not my fault, it's the woman, but ultimately it's your fault because it's the woman you gave me. You gave me this woman, and when the woman then says the serpent, she doesn't say, well, you know, she doesn't say this, but imply this, and who made the serpent? So in both cases, it ultimately points to God. Blame shifting toward one another, ultimately toward God. Here's another form of falsehood. Pleading ignorance. Pleading ignorance. On that blame shifting, before I move on, you've got your own, I've got my own forms of falsehood when I blame others for why I get angry. They push my buttons. Anytime you... Invoke someone else because of your sin, you're engaging in blame shifting. Pleading ignorance. In the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, Cain murders his brother Abel. The Lord approaches him about it and he says, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Pleading ignorance about something that you know very well the answer to. And then another type is empty promises. Empty promises. And these empty promises can take all sorts of forms. And they may seem small, but they are big to whom the promises are made. Parents, if you make a promise to your children, then keep it. Which means be very careful about the words you speak and the promises you make. If you say, if you do that one more time, I'm going to hang you up by your ears. And then they do not, they do it one more time, two more times, three more times. So why not say something truthful? If I catch you doing that again, then these are going to be the consequences. I'm going to spank you. Did you all hear that? Any social workers here? Let's just keep that in the room. (laughs) But we used to tell our girls that. If you do that, we will spank you. Or maybe it's a different type. You'll go to your room or you will lose these privileges. But when they did it, if they did it again, those consequences would follow. Empty promises teach our children we don't mean what we say. Or promises to do something. Next month I'm going to take you to. I'm going to do something for you. That's in a family context, in a church context. When we sign up for things, some of you are the fastest right hand in the West. You know what I mean by that? Your right hand just automatically goes up. You volunteer for it, but very often can't follow through with it. And so don't volunteer for it. Don't make the promise. Don't make the commitment if you can't do it. Book of Proverbs again says, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of gifts that he does not have. All right. So those are types of falsehood. What do we do about this? And quickly, let me give you some guidelines for becoming truthful. Guidelines for becoming truthful. First is this. Ask yourself very seriously, am I born again? You see, if truth does not characterize your life, then that is a characteristic not of the the new man. It's a characteristic of the old man. 
And the characteristics of the old man are still with us. We all fail. We all sin. But is it characteristic of your life that you're engaged in these and other types of falsehood? And if so, then you really need to ask the question, do I belong to God? Do I have his Holy Spirit? Do I have spiritual life? That's what we mean when we say, are we born again? And I want you to see how seriously God takes this. At the end of the Bible, the second to the last chapter of the Bible, as God talks about the fate of those who do not belong to him. Here's what it says. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters. I mean, so far you're like, yeah, wow, what a bad bunch. Notice the last one. And all liars. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. God says, if you belong to me, you're going to be characterized by truth. And if you're not characterized by truth, you don't belong to me. Are you born again? Secondly, identify your style of lying. And what's the way that you characteristically lie? Is it to conceal? Is it to insinuate? Is it to present yourself as a friend to people in public? When in fact... You say things about them behind their back. I just want to state publicly to you, friends, I, I consider that to be a form of lying and I don't do it. So if there's an issue between you and me, let's get it straightened out. But I won't act like it's okay. Just so everybody thinks it's okay. I won't play that game because it's deceptive. I don't want to deceive you. I don't want to deceive anybody else. Let's get it straightened out. Identify your style of lying. Make it your goal, then, to be truthful. Remember, replacement. You don't just stop the lying, but then you replace it with being truthful. Just a few more. Confess, then. Confess. That is... You say the same thing. That's what the word confess means in the New Testament. Say the same thing that God says about it. And what does God say about it? God says it's heinous. God says it's using the tongue and the mouth that I have given you to praise me and to edify others in, in, in distorted ways. God says that about it. God says there are grave consequences for this. So confess that to God. Say what God says about it, but then go and confess to those that you have harmed. And then repent, that is, earn back trust. If we're repentant, we go in a different direction. And we seek to, by God's grace, earn back the trust that we have lost and rightly lost because of our deceitfulness. And if you're not doing that, if you're not seeking to earn back the trust, make no mistake, you're not repentant no matter what you say. You can say, forgive me, but if you're not seeking to earn back the trust, then you're not then you're not repentant. Identify your idols because the words and the behavior have at root idols. I want to be liked by people, so I lie about things. I want to be viewed by people as better than I am, and so I slander others and I, and I elevate myself, whatever your particular idols are, and then seek accountability with other brothers and sisters to hold you accountable for this particular struggle. Now, normally I give you a take-home truth, but there's no truth for you to take home today. <laughs> it's a bad thing to say, isn't it? But we won't have the take-home truth until we get at the end of, of these. Let's ask God then to, to, to help us.
Father, we thank you that you are the Father, the God of all truth, and you've called us to be people of truth. And yet, Lord, we struggle with the characteristics of the old man and sometimes obscure the characteristics of the new man. But Lord, if we truly belong to you, we will be regularly discarding the, the old practices and putting on the new practices of the new self. And so, Lord, I pray that that is evident in my life and evident in our lives. I pray that you would help us, having heard what you say in your word about this important issue of truth and falsehood, for us to think about our relationship with you and so desire to please you that we will take even these hard actions of, of confessing and, and seeking to be held accountable. As a result of this, Lord, may we be people who use the gifts that you have given for the purpose that you've given them. And Lord, as a result of that, we pray that we will that we will honor you in all that we do. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.